So tell me about your route into medicine. So I had a bit of an unconventional route into medicine. I wasn't the best student. Um, I didn't really do science at school. I did applied science. So I didn't do the, the typical, you know, biochem physics stuff. Um, I left school. I, I went to do my A-levels. I dropped out. I did really badly. I was unfocused. And I ended up, I worked in a shop. I worked in banks. And I was just completely miserable. I hated it. I was really unfocused. And I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, and then I saw an advert for an access course. This is just like um, in place of A-levels, effectively. And um, they have different themes. And I thought maybe I want to be a teacher. So I did an access to teaching course. Um, and it was, you know, full time. So it was just completely immersed in learning. But I think because I'd been out of learning and I'd had the jobs, I really appreciated just how much of a privilege it is to learn. Um, we did, you know, geology, which I loved and loads of sciences. And it was a lot. It was that kind of the first time I'd ever really enjoyed science. So um, I did that and I decided I didn't want to do teaching, but I did want to go on and do a degree. I wasn't really wedded to any particular subject, but I decided to go and do theology because I've been good at RE as a as a, a GCSE student. It's one of the few subjects I got an A star in. So I got into a good university um, on the strength of the access course, um, which is unusual. I think I had to go through some additional processes, but they did take me. Um, and, you know, at that point, you know, once I sort of graduated, you know, I had I had a, a graduate degree. So I was able to go into graduate entry medicine the same as everyone else. So my story is quite rare in that I'm probably one of the only people in the country who um, is, you know, has been through a British system and has gone through the graduate entry program without having any A-levels. Um, so, yeah, a bit of an odd route. <laughs> no definitely and I think it's quite an inspirational route as well because it gives people who are interested in medicine that sign of hope that you don't always need the grades to get into medicine of course it helps of course stre strengthen your application however if you are really determined there are other routes into medicine as well. Yeah absolutely and I think traditionally that's not been the case and there's, there is definitely a perception that if you're not, you know, starting to prepare at the age of 14 and making yeah. sure that all your grades line up and having a very traditional route that you're not going to make it. And I think it's probably harder because the older you are, the more likely you are to have responsibilities. And it yeah. becomes more difficult then to then say, you know what, I'm going to take four or five years of studying full time and I'm not really going to earn any money. So it mm -hmm. is harder to do it this way, but it's definitely doable. Definitely. And what makes me quite curious is how did you come across the access course? Oh, I don't, I don't remember because it was so many years ago. Um, I don't know whether I just sort of came across it or I think probably at that point I was sort of searching for something beyond the, you know, I, I hated working in, in the banks. I was really bad at it. I used to lose money all the time. Um, and that is not something that you, you really need to do when you work in banking. And I remember just, I think it was probably one of the lowest points of my life, to be honest, because I kind of, you know, I was, I can't remember how old I would have been, but like, you know, sort of 18, 19, and just felt like there was nowhere for me to go. So I think I started looking around at courses that I was eligible for. And the access course was one of the few that I was actually eligible for, because at this point I've got no A-levels. All I've got is GCSEs. And it was at a local university as well, Derby University. Yeah. And what, again, makes me quite interested is you went to study theology and then went into medicine. 
and that's quite a drastic change. So what initiated your interest into medicine? Well, um, so, you know, I, I, I said, you know, I kind of went into theology because I was good at RE. But one of the things that I've always found fascinating is people. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm not religious. Um, I was a little bit religious when I was a teenager. And um, but for some people, religion is such a driving force. It's really central to absolutely everything they do. You know, people will, you know, refuse certain medical treatments for their children that could be life saving on the basis of their religion. You know, it really is central to yeah. people's entire existence. Um, so the reason that I studied that really was because of that interest in humanity. And I, so, you know, for me, medicine is an extension of that same philosophy. So they are two very different disciplines. Um, there's no kind of disputing that. But they both stem from my absolute fascination with the human condition. Um, obviously, the applications are very different. But for me, they both come off that same stem. Yeah, of course. And another thing that kind of sparked me and what you said were finances so what would you say your challenges were when you were applying to university or throughout university actually oh it's really difficult when you've when you've had a wage to kind of contemplate going to a life without a wage especially I mean I didn't have a mortgage um but yeah, it's very difficult. So when you know, I first went to do the access course, that was fine because I was very, I was very young. Again, when I did my theology degree, I was living at home. Um, but I had a son between doing my first degree and starting medicine, so I was much older and um, obviously out and established in the world. So um, there are, there is help with graduate entry medicine. So um, as probably many of you appreciate, you can't get student loans for successive degrees for everything except medicine. So if you do graduate entry medicine, you are um, eligible for student loans. Um, there's also a bursary that's paid towards your tuition fees. So rather than paying 9,000 a year, you pay about five and a half thousand, except for the first year, which you have to find yourself. And then there are there is a, a bursary, which I think it was when I was when I was there it was a thousand pounds that everyone gets that's non means tested. And then you can have loans and things on top of that. Unfortunately, um, during my first year of medical school, I split up with my son's father and we kind of found ourselves, you know, effectively homeless, to be honest. Um, and that was really difficult especially, you know, because of the pressures of, of med school, because it's insanely difficult, but also because, you know, I, I, I felt like I was about to lose my medical degree because I needed, suddenly needed to completely support my child. Um, but I did receive, res- received a bigger bursary. So there's the non-means-tested one. And then for someone in my position, there was a uh, means-tested bursary that helped with my son's childcare um fees um which kept me in university which was really really helpful and I'm really appreciative of that so um I was able to manage through medical school um at least until I met my my current partner and then we moved in together and then I didn't need the support anymore but there there is um support out there for anyone who's thinking about applying to medical school who's a bit you know anxious about what the finances may be I'd recommend ringing um NHS boss bursaries so they are the people who arrange the bursaries and if you if you google them you can find the number and you can give them a ring and they will talk to you about what you would be entitled to Yes, definitely. And I think what you've just said is such an important point. You know, um, I think for undergraduate medicine and graduate medicine, 
you've got student um, finance England, you've got NHS bursaries. You've also got loads of scholarships within the university as well and bursaries yeah. within the university, which you could be entitled to. And even in your local city, there's plenty of trusts which are willing to fund you, um, whether it be a bursary or a scholarship again. And they generally target those who are, say, first time, um, you know, first time from their family going into medicine or going to university, but also those who are carers or have children or are single parents. Um, so definitely those who do require the financial support. So there is plenty of um, help out there for that. So yeah, really I mean, definitely. I mean, I should I should say, I, you know, I'm a vice president of the scholarship program for Medic yeah. Mentor. And Medic Mentor is a not for profit. It's a national not for profit, which offers scholarships yeah. to medical students across the country. So there are organisations like Medic Mentor, um, which anyone can apply for. Yes, exactly. Definitely. And something you mentioned um, in your kind of response was that you were a single mother throughout med school, really. And how did you deal with the unexpected challenge of having to look after your child unsupported when you, of course, split up from um, his father? That must oh, be yeah. really I mean, emotionally it, it draining. Yeah, I mean, it's it's such a dark, it's such a dark time. Yeah. And, you know, so I was just coming towards the end of my first year of GEM. For those of you that don't know, um, graduate entry medicine is four years rather than five. And where that year is saved is off the preclinical year. So rather than 2.5 and 2.5 preclinical and clinical, you're really doing that 2.5 in 18 months. So those first 18 months are really, really hard especially for someone in my position who obviously not being from a science background, you know, a lot of the people who do graduate entry medicine have got things like biosciences degrees, you know, biology degrees. And there was me with my theology degree. So I'm working really hard. Everything's brand new to me. And then, you know, in the December of my first year, you know, my dad gets diagnosed with cancer. It's, it's terminal. There's no chance of curing it. There's not even any treatment really. And then, you know, my relationship goes down the pan and um, it was it was not a happy relationship at all. And it sort of ended up with a, a course which was incredibly difficult, which I was struggling at. Um, I've got a baby who's who's two and I've sort of never lived on my own before. And I'm, I'm in a position where I'm dealing with, you know, the loss of, of my dad. Or I, I know that I'm going to lose him. I'll eventually lose him, you know, um, about a year after he's diagnosed um, on the successive New Year's Eve. So it was a really, really rubbish year. Yeah. But one of the things that really got me through it was that, you know, I have to say, like, I think, you know, I was so happy on graduate entry medicine because I think because I'd worked and had really, I, I really worked really hard to get onto medicine. And every, every day I felt like I was working towards something that was really great. And because I'd spent so many years trying to get onto medicine, I never took it for granted at all. And, you know, my son and I were going through such hardship. Every day that I turned up to my placement, every exam that I passed, every exam that I worked towards, I, I felt like, you know, I was moving forward and trying to create a life out of, the, you know, the ruins of, you know, what happened to mine that was something that I was proud of. And um, I think f for everyone, whether you're a parent or you're not a parent, you know, medical school is really hard and if you're a person whose life is you know basically perfect you're still going to find medicine incredibly challenging the problem is 
for, for every single one of us, even those of us who've got really uncomplicated lives at the start of medical school, you know, life doesn't remain like that. You know, people get sick, relationships end, people's families have financial hardship. Um, you know, just, you know, I, I've obviously had the, you know, my situation was that I was, I was a mother and I was a single mother, but I think if you talk to anyone who's been through medical school, they would say to you, you know, this thing happened in third year or fourth year. And actually, because medical school takes so much for you to just to tread water anyway, when these additional circumstances come into that situation, um, it can threaten to completely derail you. And I think that causes a lot of fear and hardship for most of us. And, you know, the way that I dealt with that was just ensuring that I would always try and stay ahead of the curve. So a lot of my colleagues, you know, they would, you know, they would you know, take time off or they would get behind on projects. For me, I, I had to stay ahead um, of the curve and I had to consistently try and be better than everyone else because I knew that there would be a point where my son would be ill or I wouldn't be able to study because I'd been up all night with him being sick or something like that. And I'd miss sessions or I wouldn't be able to study. And then you sort of get knocked back and you can't afford to get knocked back too far. So the, the fear in the, of failing kind of it made me try and push myself further and further to ensure that my position in the cohort was sort of stable. And that work, that has worked for me um, all along. And I ended up finishing... Um, so unfortunately you know it's, it's a bit of an unfortunate thing about medical school I don't agree with it we're, we're ranked nationally um and I ended up doing really well um in my cohort and I think that's really surprising for you know as I sit here as you know I'm just finishing my F2 I've just been off it I'm going to get a, a core training surgical a core surgical training number and you know when I started medical school and I walked in or you know if you look at me kind of in the second half of that first year you know I am a young woman who doesn't have a penny to my name you know I've got a 10 year old car I've got a two year old I've got nowhere to live you know I've got no science experience at all I'm the first in my family to university you know I've had a real struggle I had to take the gums out like three times um and you know here I am you know I graduated well in in my cohort and you know I've just been offered a, a very competitive um speciality um, and, you know, I think if I can do it, <laughs> I think anyone can do it, certainly. Yeah. And I think what you've just described is absolutely inspirational, you know, to have that focus and that goal and to have that perseverance and resilience to continue working towards it. And I think you've just described it absolutely amazingly. And like Thank you've you. just said, you know, going from having absolutely no A-levels to getting onto a competitive specialty in medicine that's really something <laughs> so something to be really proud of as well thank and you you're very welcome and on that note so of course you know your first couple of years in medical school was very difficult and mm. although you had a goal which you were working towards did you have any particular strategies to keep yourself motivated but also emotionally stable and yeah so strategies I mean, that you've used yeah, de- as well absolutely yeah definitely I mean everything that I have described was you know we can talk about it you know now and in, in retrospect and it's it's conversational but at the time you know we're talking about really serious you know yeah. life-altering exactly. circumstances which would bring anyone to their knees and you know there were a couple of times where 
it, it was just awful and I couldn't see the light at the end of the tunnel and the things that I did were partly what I've described was that you know I had a clear goal my goal was to get to the end of medical school and then in that I had smaller goals which were you know just getting through the next uh, you know mock test or you know things like that getting to the end of the year and that kept me focused and it kept me going and one of the things that helped me was the fact that I loved medical school so much and because I'd worked and had jobs you know I knew that there was no better alternative for me in terms of coping strategies and, and things like that I think it's really important to sort of assess yourself um, because sometimes we we end up with you know emotions that we don't always necessarily understand so you notice that you're being a bit irritable or you feel tired all the time or you you seem angry and you're not really sure why so what I, whenever I get a feeling like that it sounds odd but I sit and I sort of will ruminate on on what that feeling is and, and where that feeling has come from and often it takes a little while to get there like I'm, I'm feeling irritable and I have to sit there and think what is it which area of my life is causing me this irritability and I have to sit there and put some effort into it and then once I work out what it, it's just like a light bulb moment I think Do you know what it's this thing and I'm really worried about it and until I until I sort of sat there and ruminated on it it wasn't a conscious thought that I was anxious about this thing and then once I realise that I'm actually anxious about this thing, it becomes very easy because I can sit there and think, well, this thing is causing me significant anxiety. This is what I'm going to go and do to rectify it. And once I've done that, that feeling goes away and I feel like I'm in control of myself. The second thing that I do, and I recommend this for everyone, is I, I will be selfish. And, and it sounds awful, but you you can't you know you can't fill from an, an empty jug and sometimes you just have to say no um there will be times you know when um you know if I feel like I'm just reaching a point of exhaustion that I will just say do you know what I need to have the day off today um and you know I'm going to stay in bed and I'm going to eat chocolate and I'm watch a film and the key I think the key to preventing burnout is what it says on the tin prevent burnout don't get burned out and then try and fix it so there's a great line in um dr zeus's oh the places you'll go and i love that book and actually recommend for everyone that's listening to this to read it because it is a children's book and it sounds silly but i actually found it on um i was reading a list of um uh for a new graduate and i thought i saw that it was a dozen uh, a bit odd so I thought I'd buy it and read it and I actually read it to myself um, whenever I feel a little bit low and there's a line in there that goes something like unslumping yourself is not easily done and that stuck with me actually because I always try and prevent myself before I get into the slump because it's harder to dig yourself out from burnout rather than preventing yourself getting there so if I feel that I'm starting to get a bit frazzled I act very quickly. So I will have a, I will reassess the things that I'm doing. And I do this a lot now because as a junior doctor, I'm currently wearing a lot of different hats. You know, the Instagram thing takes time. The YouTube thing takes time. I'm studying for MRCS. I've obviously got two children now and I'm a junior doctor. And, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, asset, I'm an asset rep now for the foundation and I've got a job as vice president of scholarships for, for Medic Mentor. Um, all of these things have different demands on my time and I often feel like I'm juggling things and very often I have to if I if I start to get certain symptoms of burnout or 
you know, I feel like I'm a bit frazzled, then I have to very rap. I will very rapidly act and assess, you know, what am I doing this week? Is there anything that uh, can be cut out? And um, that's one of the things that I've done all the way through medical school is just basically to try and constantly reassess myself and reassess my emotions. And um, that has worked for me, actually. It's been a very successful strategy. The only times where it's become problematic is those moments where you absolutely can't take the pressure off because you're pulling up towards examinations and things like that. And in those moments, I've just tried to, um, they're the moments where I've had to be selfish and say, you know what, I'm coming up to finals in an ideal world. I'd stop studying because I'm reaching a point of burnout, but I can't because I don't want to fail my finals. So I'm going to say that I'm not going to cook this week at all. We're going to get, you know, sandwiches or takeaways, or I'm not going to do any of the washing or, you know, any of those type of things. Or I'm going to sleep in all day on Saturday and, you know, I'm going to abandon these responsibilities. And that is something that's really worked for me. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, again, you've just mentioned such a key point. You know, you need to prioritise yourself first. And I think that's the success to anything. Yeah. And... <laughs> What I find quite interesting is, you know, medicine's quite a competitive career choice, really. And throughout this journey, have you ever felt that you've had to compare yourself to others or that you may not be good as other doctors or medical students? And if so, how did you cope with that? Yeah, I mean, definitely. I think I recently did a talk on imposter syndrome. And I definitely have a massive dose of imposter syndrome. You know, when I went to university, you know, like, like I said, they did a hand raising exercise on the first day, which is who's got what degrees. Um, and, you know, 90 um, percent of the hands went up for biomedical sciences. And then there was about, I don't know, six or seven percent, which was biology. And then there was a scattering of a little bit of physics and then a couple of arts degrees. And I was one of only a few arts degrees. So when we would go into a, a lesson, I was miles behind everyone else. And what compounded that was the fact that I had a child before I started, which has always made me feel like um, people think that medicine's a hobby for me and um, that I'm, I'm not going to be taken as seriously as a doctor because, you know, I'm a mum and, you know, they're going to think I'm going to go into one of those, you know, mum specialities, whatever that means. And that has really bothered me. And whether that's my perception or whether that's, you know, cues that I've picked up, I couldn't tell you. Um, but yeah, and you know, I'm the, I'm from a working class family. I'm the first in my family to university, effectively. Um, you know, I, it never occurred to me to be a doctor when I was a kid because no one in my school would have ever even comprehended um, that I would have gone on to be a doctor. And because of all yeah. those things, um, I all through medical school, I just felt like I didn't belong and that I wasn't good enough. And that's part of the thing that's pushed me, I think, harder to prove that I am as good as everyone else. Um, although in some moments I, I haven't been for the first couple of years, you know, I graduated well, but, you know, in, in the first couple of years I didn't do well on my exams. And, you know, I never got a merit in any modules or anything like that because I've never been able to, I've never been able to dedicate the same amount of time to medical school as with the medics because, you know, I, my time has always been so thin. And that was something that really affected me. And especially when you're looking at competition ratios. Um, but I just had to school myself to think, you know, 
you know when I was you know when I was on gem and other people we would look at our rankings and you know other people had much higher marks than me and I would just think you know what they sat there all weekend and they studied for that and they earned that um and you know I was looking after my son and you know they've made their choices and I've made mine and I'm here and as long as I do the best that I can do and as long as I'm always safe and I'm proud of my scores and that has to be enough and I think it is harmful actually how much we are ranked against each other in medical school um and you know recently I didn't do quite as well in my core surgical interview as I, I had hoped um, and, you know, again, it's a ranking thing. You're ranked against your peers. You're directly competing against your peers. You know, constantly feel like I'm competing against my peers. And suddenly I'm in a situation where having worked really hard the last year to compile what was a really good cross surgical application and, and having more points, I think, than most people, suddenly gone to the, the bottom of the pile because my interview was so poor. And in the end, I just kind of thought, you know, sometimes it's a case of you know the best man wins and I, I, I'm you know I'm very happy for my colleagues who did better than I did you know they obviously did better studying or prepared in a better way than I did or you know just I don't know for, for whatever reason they did better than I did and I, I'm not bitter about that at all in fact I just think it's really helpful to when someone is doing better than you to think how can I learn from this you know can I have a conversation with someone and talk about what they did right you know are they able to give me some of their time so we can talk about what I did wrong and I can learn from it and therefore better myself and I think because I think that way I don't have dealt quite well with the you know being knocked back yeah and I think again you've mentioned such important points again and I think it's really important, although, you know, naturally in a career such as medicine it is competitive and you do naturally compare yourself. But I think to realise that you are doing the best that you can possibly do in your situation is really important because not everyone has the same situation. Not everyone has the same sorts of struggles. And I think to be able to identify that and work with that, I think that you know that's a very positive thing I mean I have to as a doctor I have to say you know the stuff that you do in med school has no representation on what you do as a junior Mm -hmm. doctor you know and that's partly what the SJT is for but it's not the same set of skills and I think medical medical school is odd in that there's a lot of different skills you know some people are very academic and do well at the academics some people are good at you know the clinical skills and some people are good at communication and most people aren't excellent at all three of those and as you go and you become a doctor you know whether you're you know excellent at understanding the Krebs cycle doesn't necessarily matter as much what matters is your organizational skills your ability to take care of yourself and be a good safe doctor and you know if you are someone who's listening to this and you know you're worried that you're not quite at the top of your cohort it really won't be a concern that you will have five years from now yeah definitely and at the end of the day when you become a doctor you know you're you're exactly the same no one really looks at where you graduated from what mark you got it's just you're all a doctor Mm. and it kind of stops that that and continues Mm. and another thing that I'm quite curious about is of course it sounds like you've had so many challenges you know before medical school during medical school and post-medical school and being a female as a mother and also going into such a 
competitive male dominated specialties such as surgery. How, what challenges did you face and how did you overcome those? So I think the same as sort of what I was saying earlier in that I, I feel that there is a perception that, you know, that I'm not as serious about medicine because I've got a family. And it is something that's made me uncomfortable since the first day that I walked into, you know, medical school. That's why, you know, I've always worked full time. Um, and, you know, sometimes people make comments about, um, well, someone made a comment a couple of years ago about, I think I was complaining about the amount of hours that I was having to work because I was doing like 72 hours straight or something like that, or whatever, I was approaching the limit of what is legal. And she made some comment about it didn't bother her that much because she didn't have children at home. And that really, really bothered me because, you know, you can, no one wants to work 72 hours straight. It's, it, it's too much. And, or whatever it was that I was working. And I resented that she implied that I was not liking it because I had a child at home. I just didn't like it because I'm a human being who doesn't want to be in the hospital all the time. Um, and I guess that's, that's either my anxiety or my perception is that people don't take me quite seriously or they think that I've got other priorities. When actually, you know, I worked the same hours as everyone else. And um, I've done that, I think, I've worked the same hours as everyone else, partly to assuage that kind of this idea that I'm not serious. Um, but now, you know, I, I had another baby. I've just come back off maternity leave and I am part time at the moment or less than full time, as we call it. So I am, you know, doing less than everyone else. And um, how that plays in a, in a male dominated speciality, um, I'm not I'm just not sure at the moment. It'd be something that I'll have to learn as I go along. I have found up until this point that it's not been an issue. You know, I worked on cardiothoracics to begin with. Um, they were incredibly pleased with my work. And I think at the end of the day, as long as you are a competent and a competent employee and someone who is, you know, jolly and happy and, you know, has is positive, someone who's a real asset to the team, then even if people do have perceptions to begin with you're going to be the person that helps change these perceptions and you know my goal is always you know as I'm working up through my career to try and change those perceptions so that you know the single mothers and the mothers and you know just the, the, the women that come after me um don't necessarily hit those barriers yeah definitely and before going into surgery was there anything that concerned you about being a mother and being female or any other challenges about going into that speciality specifically yeah I mean I definitely had conversations with with Ash about surgery I mean I didn't really know what I wanted to do when I graduated um it is the, the kind of uh, the opinions that you have when you're in, in med school about what speciality you do in my experience can change once you start working in the speciality and doing it day to day and I was sort of thinking I might want to do obstetrics or medicine and once I started to work on the wards, I realized that, you know, ward round really isn't for me. And I really liked the, you know, the buzz of the surgical wards, the short ward round, the, you know, procedural aspect. And as I was sort of making these thoughts effectively, I remember saying to my other half, you know, I'm really worried that I'm starting to prefer surgery to medicine. And I remember thinking, that that was a worrying thought because the perception is that surgery is um male dominated it's it's many many hours and all of those kind of things and when i i sort of reached a point where i was like surgery is the only thing for me because i really love it um 
that was almost negative. I remember feeling very negative about that realization. But what I've learned since then is that uh, medicine is changing and you can do these things more on your own terms. Um, certain specialities are easier to do this. So obviously, ops and gynae is surgical. Um, there is a, a lot, lot of women in that speciality. It's very easy to be less than full time, take maternity leave and all those things. Um, it's less... It's less usual um, to do those things in certain surgical specialities. Um, but the percentage of women in surgery is changing. That is not reflected currently in, in senior leadership roles. So it's not currently reflected in the levels of male con uh, in consultants. Their you know, consultant posts are still largely male. But the increased number of, reg uh, the number of registrar posts is increasing. Um, and what that means that in years to come, there will be a strong female leadership in surgery. Um, hopefully, eventually, you know, I'll, I'll be one of those. And so it is changing. And um, that's important to consider. But in the meantime, um, I, what I decided was that I would rather work less than full time in a busy and demanding speciality that I really enjoyed than perhaps work more hours in something that had less um, of a full kind of on-call rotor. And that way I felt like I could have the best of both worlds. So, you know, I might only work, you know, 60 or 70% or maybe even 50% um, of a very busy job. And you're still going to end up working, you know, 27, 30 hours. But I would rather do that and take longer to progress than, you know, push myself into a speciality that I don't want to do. Because, you know, ultimately doing, going, doing anything at medical school effectively is, has always historically been a male dominated kind of, you know occupation it's either the early 1900s or the 1920s yeah. or even the might have been in the 19th century and there were seven women who desperately wanted to be doctors and they were allowed to attend the classes and they all turned up to sit the final exam to be doctors and they were denied entry and they were uh, never given their degrees having worked for them I think a couple of them went to America and did qualify but some of them didn't and recently they were um, posthumously made doctors which is wonderful but you know these women had it really difficult and um, you know I, I feel like the small things I can do as I progress through my career as a you know as a mother I've got two children hopefully it's just adding to the you know phenomenal footsteps that they have left so that, you know, the, the little girls that, you know, grow up and come after me feel that they can do whatever they want. And actually, in all medical specialities, whether you're a woman or a man, most a lot of us are starting to say, I don't want to work, you know, the 100 hour weeks that we, people were working in in the 90s. And I want to have a portfolio career. I want to do urology and I want to do something else. Like I want to do teaching or, you know, a lot of my colleagues seem to want to do Botox and things like that. And, um, yeah. so even if that, that whole attitude of wanting to do medicine less than full time, whether you're a man or a woman, children or no children, um, is, is spreading. So it's becoming more common to be able to say, do you know what? I don't want to work all the time. I want to be able to go to the gym. I want to see my family and see my friends. And that is an attitude that historically was, you know, it was obviously condemned that attitude alongside mm -hmm. being someone who wanted to have a family and have children and do something other than general practice yeah definitely and I think again what you've said is very true in so many aspects I think 
you know, women shouldn't be put off going into competitive male dominated specialties or career paths just because they will be the minority. And with that attitude, it means that women will be the minority forever unless we change that attitude and go into those specialties. Absolutely. Um, And I have to say, I largely found that, you know, male consultants are very supportive. Yeah. I've only had one. There's been a couple of instances where I've been the F1 and a male consultant has spent their time talking to the male medical student rather than me I've had a couple of those but for the most part you know they're they're good eggs and they're you know they they care more about the good workers than what gender you are definitely and I think another important point is doctors need to be representative of who they're going to be working with and you know females whether they're mothers or whether they're single at the moment with no children or you know whatever their background is in whichever way they got into medicine and pursued medicine you need to be reflective of your patients and if you're not then it also makes it very difficult to build that patient doctor relationship and also just have that understanding with your patients <clears throat> and be able to prolong that and fulfill that so i think that's a really really important point that you've mentioned actually yeah i mean we we need representation i mean you know i so i consider myself to be someone who you know is is open to you know supporting people of different opportunities and from different backgrounds but um a friend of mine dr farah roslin she made national news recently because she invented the disposable hijab and um you know that is a barrier that just never would never have occurred to me and this is why Mm. it's so important for women from different backgrounds to come and and make their presence known in all of these specialities because i mean farah is she's a ct1 so she's very junior in her career for how many years previously has it been difficult for muslim women to go and be in a theatre you know effectively by not having a a hijab that um you know is there in theatre you're saying to muslim women um this is not the place for you there is a barrier here because we've got to have an awkward conversation about whether there's an infection risk can you take your hijab off no i can't take it off well it might be an effect you know whether that conversation happens or not it's got to be going on in your head that it might be an issue and yeah. you know, Farah came along and you know resolved this problem in an, in a very ingenious way. Um, but if she hadn't, if she had been put off from going into surgery, this issue would be still going on. Um, so you know, the, you know, for all the best will in the world, this would never have been a barrier that would have occurred to me because I've not had this problem, I've not had this experience. Mm-hmm. So you know, we've got to encourage women from all different backgrounds to come and make their voices heard and leave their mark on surgery. Because, I mean, what Farah's done is absolutely remarkable, isn't it? I mean, she's changed the face of surgery for an entire um, subset of women. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Definitely. And I don't think, you know, myself included, I don't think I've seen many women in theatre who wear a hijab now that you've mentioned it you know I can understand why this is a barrier and why you know the difficulties and challenges they've faced as well absolutely and yeah like you said representation is such a huge part of medicine and doctors aren't you know just medics they have a life as well you know they're human beings as well they have things going on outside of medicine as well and there shouldn't be barriers to their practice of medicine. And that's just something 
you know the more we speak about it the more we open up topics around it mm-hmm. the more voices will be heard and change can be made and the other question I wanted to ask you is looking into the future where do you see yourself so um I can't decide on my speciality you know I think probably maybe plastic surgery it's all up in the air but certainly mm-hmm. I'd like to be a consultant surgeon um I would like to have some sort of additional role alongside this um I would love to be president of the Royal College of Surgeons um I think that would be absolutely wonderful you know definitely I absolutely love my role at Medic Mentor I do a lot of mentoring teaching organizing a curriculum and I feel like I'm really helping to raise the next generation of of movers and shakers in medicine and I love that feeling and that isn't really something that as a consultant surgeon I'll get. So I would like to do something that's got an overarching uh, responsibility over the you know, the, uh, national sur- surgery. So I'd like to do something like that. I yeah. want to have a life as well. You know, I, I see myself, you know, I don't want to get to the age of, you know, whatever age, whenever I'm going to retire and, you know, be, you know, too old to enjoy my life you know my dad only made it to the age of you know he was just turned 53 so I don't want to spend the next years of my life um just solely at work thinking you know what I'll do this when I retire I'll do this when I retire and then not get to a retirement because unfortunately not all of us make it to 90 you know I I want to have a day off where you know to be with my my children and when they're grown you know I want to be going to the gym and you know or going for a walk going to a cafe reading a book and that is and I think lockdown has 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 taught us this as well is that there is more to life than just working there is being outside and you know I think it's really important for mental health to be out and being in nature there's lots of evidence that suggests that you know not only is exercise incredibly good for your mental health but just being around you know green and nature is good for you so I think about things like that as being um, absolutely crucial to my my well-being. So I don't know. I I feel like I'm almost reaching a a state where I think as well as sort of like eating and drinking and all of those things that we are given time at work to do, we we are now realising that we need to have time for people just to be off and, you know, to like decompress from work and have a life and feel like they want to come to work rather than just you know having to come to work and you know who do you want operating on your on you or your wife or your husband or your your child is it someone who is fulfilled at work and works three days a week or is it someone who you know like back in the 90s where they're working 100 hours and you know has a bad marriage and lots of arguments because they don't see each other and all of that stuff you know all of the stereotypes that they used to have you know people who are very overworked I feel make more mistakes so what I think is yeah. positive about medicine is being able to say to people, you know, take the time and, you know, do do this part time. And, you know, there is implications for training, obviously, if you're doing it slower. Yeah. Um, it's not as simple as, you know, it's, it's not a magic pill being less than full time. But I think I think there are really important effects of, of it. Definitely. And I think, again, you know, it sounds like you've been very active and very involved from medical school and beyond and what opportunities would you say are available during your training because it sounds as if you've got involved in you know teaching research and a lot more as well 
and more specifically what opportunities are available within surgery? Um, so if you're a person who wants to do surgery, um, it really makes sense to familiarise yourself with the core surgical training application early on, because some of the things that you can score big points on are actually easier to do in med school, like organising teaching courses and things like that. It's an absolute nightmare to do that as a junior doctor, because um, it needs to be bigger than local. So, you know, trying to organise, you know, junior doctors, you've either got to get them in their very precious time off or you've got to get the trust to give you some time, which is hard to do. Whereas as a med student, you know, it's, it's easy to get med students together and you can even get funding for like pizza and all of those things that they, the, the societies will give you. Um, so um, there's a video on my YouTube channel about how to score points in the course surgical application process. But briefly to go into it, you know, things like national leadership roles, where, whether you apply to surgery or medicine, I'd recommend that you go and look at the um, the application form for um, ST1 or CT1 because if you're a third or fourth year medical student, I know it feels like miles away, but actually in terms of your foundation um, rotations, it, it just comes and goes so quickly and you're obviously applying in the first year of foundation. So you've only really got a year um, and it just, it, it flies by. Um, so whether you know what you want to do, a lot of the applications are very similar. So you can have a look at them and you'll find that the medicine and surgery one are almost identical. So getting involved, like things like a national leadership role. So my role at Medic Mentor is a national leadership role. Um, but anything like um, uh, your local surgical society president or treasurer of one of the societies, they're probably a regional role um, that gets you points. So get involved in something like that. Um, often doing these jobs will teach you leadership skills, which is really useful for later on. Um, there is something called the Edward Jenner Programme, which is open to medical students. It's a baby version of the Mary Seacole Programme that I've just done, which is it's open to all medical students. It's free. Um, and that's a leadership program. It's run by um, the NHS Leadership Academy. So it's a formal um, NHS leadership award. Um, I even got a little badge with mine, which was nice. Um, so that can give you points on your application as well. And it's great for, you know, I always think that you should be thinking years and years ahead. So it seems silly, but I'm tr always trying to think about things that I might discuss when I'm a consultant, because I'd rather get to, you know, a position where I'm starting to think about posts and be choosing from the million things that I've done rather than panicking that actually I need to should have should be demonstrating more leadership skills than I've got. So have a look around. Um, in terms of teaching, um, there are always going to be someone more junior than you. So um, if you feel that teaching is not your forte, try some informal teaching, you know, around pick a subject that you, you feel really confident about and, you know, try with one of your peers. It's a really good way of revising, actually. Some of the teaching that I do with my clinical cases on Instagram, right, one of the reasons I do them is because going through that teaching program actually helps me to consolidate the information that I need to learn. So teaching has many benefits, but grab a peer um, and practice, you know, teaching, whether it's bedside teaching, communications teaching or formal academic lecture style teaching. Have a go at that. Um, there are places like Medic Mentor. So at Medic Mentor, um, the scholars there, if you're a medical student, you can apply to be a scholar at Medic Mentor every autumn. And what we do is we try and give everyone opportunities to increase their leadership teaching and research skills. 
Um, so any of the projects they do can count nationally for, you know, they'll be, they'll be counting those for the rest of their careers. Um, so, yeah, think about organising courses, get training, um, teacher training experience, um, and anything really. And it depends what you want to do. So you can think about if you, if you desperately want to be an anaesthetist, you know, you could do some pre-hospital courses. If you desperately want to be a surgeon, you know, there are always um, courses for um, med students that are like practicing surgical skills. So um, there's loads and loads and loads to get involved with. And I would recommend, um, I, I'm obviously Asset Foundation rep, so um, I'd recommend having a look at Asset um, because they do loads of really helpful courses, especially for surgery, which are free. Um, I actually think, um, the Instagram is a really great resource because if you follow places like the Royal College of Surgeons, ASSIT, Royal College of Medicine, um, you know, wh whatever your interest is, wherever your interest lies, or as a med student, I'd say follow everyone and everything because these places often uh, recommend some really great free courses. Um, you know, I'm doing a really great course tomorrow, which is completely free, which I'm, you know, it's, it's organized by a place called Cutting to the Core, which is just organized by some you know, foundation doctors um which is mrcs prep and it's it's open to everyone you can be a med student and go so it's always never been easier to get involved in lots of different things whether it be studying or learning or refining your leadership or teaching skills in either a formal way like the you know the edward jenner program or whether an informal way or you know whatever you want to get involved with yeah Definitely. And, you know, I think, again, that's such an important thing to do, getting yourself involved in things to think ahead of what's about to come. I think that's that's really proactive and shows your initiative. I think, you know, the support system was mirrored again post-graduation. Do you think your colleagues at work were quite supportive of you during maternity leave or during your Yeah, pregnancy. I mean, as a foundation doctor, there just there isn't any support, really. Um, for everyone else, when you're, you're in a job, aren't you? You get hired, you know people, you go off, they give you a... And, you know, occasionally you email your boss, you know, and all of that stuff. And then you go back into the same job and they probably support you. And you know the job, you know, maybe you get... You start off less than full-time, but... As a foundation doctor, you don't belong anywhere. You're constantly changing rotations. So you're off for a year. There's obviously no one to look in on you because you don't belong yeah. to any particular department. Um, and then you're offered, you know, kit days, keep in touch days um, where you can go in and, you know, work, you know, work in your speciality. But, you know, I didn't belong to any speciality. So the GP practice that I'm currently in have been brilliant. Um, you know, they're very, they're all very nice and, you know, they all, you know, um, they're absolutely wonderful. But in terms of the program looking after me as a returning, as a returning doctor, there hasn't been like a named person that has been looking after me at all. So I've sort of felt, you know, while I was off on maternity leave, that I've just been floating, not belong to anyone or anything. Um, so yeah, I mean, as a foundation, I, I guess it's because it's meant to be such a short training program, but yeah, no, I don't, I don't think there is loads and loads of support. No. Looking back, would you have changed no, anything? I don't think so. I think, I think it would have been helpful in hindsight to know that I get there and then it would all be okay and perhaps have a bit more faith yeah. in myself because I spent so many hours 
in just like you know mental angst just thinking I wasn't good enough I wasn't going to make it through um my ex-partner my son's father told me that I would never make it through I'd never be a doctor and that definitely kind of like rang through my head as you know I was going through and it I would do everything the same as I've done, but it would have been nice just to, 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 to know and just not to doubt myself quite as much as I did. It would have saved me a lot of angst and pain, I think. 